0: Is it something where, like that move is super tough, right? Like going, because your DNA, maybe there weren't a lot of people then, so it was easier to switch your DNA, but the DNA of selling to like a platform play or selling to everyone who has a blog versus selling to Visa or the NBA, like there's expectations, the MSA, all that kind of stuff. What was that transition like?
1: Yeah, it was super painful. It was (laughs) Keeping it real. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) totally. Uh, It was 24 months and it's, we're still, At the end of that, the hardest stuff was really behind us. Literally everything about our business had to change.
2: From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Ben Hillman. And on this episode, May Habib, CEO of Cordoba, talks about how transitioning to a new market requires strategic pivoting.
0: Everyone goes up market eventually, especially in B two B software. The cash and customers at the enterprise level, and even the upper mid market, are just too tantalizing to pass up.
2: But those customers come with tons of baggage, so right? So, <laughs> I mean, there's there's all kinds of specific requests, very very unique to their business, and the problem at that part of the market is almost always more complex.
0: I don't know if I agree with that last part. You know, our retained product that handles credit card failures has some extra complexity at the upper part of the market, but not substantially different than the mid-market. You know, that being said, most companies who go up market, they end up doing that by expanding their offering. You know, few actually make the leap from kind of abandoning the low end of the market and going right at the enterprise instead or or vice versa.
2: Why would you even do that? Well, that's a good question
0: actually i mean there there are a number of reasons but to me the the big one is really that the low end of the market sometimes needs a massive amount of time to develop you know for example in the pricing space that we know really really well with our price intelligently product the high end of the market is at a point where they know pricing is important, they're able to allocate budget to pricing, and ultimately they're able to put the strategies into practice. You know, the low end of the market is almost the complete opposite. They don't have the time, they don't see the value because they're running around with, you know, maybe misplaced, but still very, very different priorities. Now, on the other hand, a brand new market like inbound marketing, when HubSpot, and Marketo, and some of these other folks came to market, that was better suited by starting at the bottom or at least near the bottom because larger businesses were going to take a long time to get inbound marketing and change their strategies to accommodate. And I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is If you were inbound marketing or you were trying to change this and you started at the top of the market, all of a sudden you would realize very quickly that it was just going to be a slog and not work. And so you jump down in order to be successful. And that's, that's why you probably would do this over time or in a dramatic fashion, I would say.
2: Right. And and company DNA has a lot to do with this too. Like, sure. like, like some folks are just better suited for SMB acquisition, whereas others are they're much better at enterprise type deals. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's that's definitely right. And this is why I'm so excited we had the chance to sit down with May Habib, who is, you know, one of the biggest BAMFs I've ever met. I'm just a big, big fan. Um, she's the founder and CEO of Cordoba, a content intelligence platform that went through quite a transformation moving from the low end of the market as a content localization product to selling to giant enterprises like Marriott, Visa, and even Condé Nast.
2: Yeah, and prior to founding Cordoba, she actually started her career at Lehman Brothers right before the 2008 crash, before working at Mubadala Development and World Economic Forum given the transition
0: that Cordoba encountered going from the low end of the market to the high end of the market went successfully, she's in a very unique position to talk to us about how any successful pivot requires a proactive group effort from every single part of the company and with almost every single minute that the CEO has to spare. But before we unpack that concept, let's first jump into May's background, including how Cordoba got its start and where the seeds of a much, much bigger market started to Wow. Yeah, and that's and it's all the ex- external or also internal
1: external and internal okay So, so just
0: all the content. Yeah, produce. totally. That's so wild it, Why how'd you get into this yeah. like it's clearly valuable like what you're yeah. saying, but like what was the you know? What was that moment? Or it was definitely uh, yeah. a
1: journey. I, I started my career in tech banking and moved to a sovereign wealth fund where I was focused on technology And I've always been a voracious reader and writer. I ran my high school newspaper, my college newspaper. And so it's funny that I've kind of come full circle now with um, an AI solution that helps people write better, uh, but really focused on the enterprise use cases. So Cordoba, very simply, the product does something pretty cool. We allow enterprises to see all of the content that they produce in a single place. And we give them AI-based suggestions on how to improve that content. So for some customers, it can be as simple as grammar and terminology checks that they apply consistently across all their channels. For others, it's about compliance checks and plagiarism checks across all the content that they produce. And yet for others, it's about increasing the level of clarity and creativity, brand of voice, tone of voice across all of the content. And that's all without using human editors. So today, most of our customers are enterprise customers, uh, folks like Cisco, Condé Nast, the NBA, Hmm. Visa and Marriott. And we sell primarily to content and product. We as a product came through this really through learning from our customers. So we initially launched five years ago as a localization solution. And what you learn about Loke is you get really good and you have to build a product that basically takes content out of software and puts it back in. Really, what you've done there is put all of that content in a single place and made it easy to examine. And people were finding all sorts of mistakes in their content. And so we ended up building a really robust AI-based solution for the enterprise that allowed them to quickly make changes, whether that content lived in a repo or a CMS, and analyze it across the whole
0: company. That's so cool. And when you say, like on the localization front, the move going from localization to this problem, right? Because there's plenty of localization companies, and maybe Mm -hmm. that was the the why of moving moving Mm -hmm. on to this, but... What was the? What was the, like? This is the bigger need, or you know, is it? Oh, we still do localization, but there's you know, there's more of a need. Yeah,
1: no, we've after. completely transitioned out of a loc. The big need for us came from watching customers like a Visa or a Marriotts ask us whether they could edit their English content, and we we're like, wait, why would you want to do that? And I remember like driving over to Visa in Foster City the first time that happened, being like, walk me through why you want to create content in Cordoba, right? Yeah, Just yeah, so I really yeah. understand it.
0: Content rules everything around. Me.
2: Once again, Wu Tang forever. More Wu Tang. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> but. In all seriousness, content is getting out of control in the market. Right? You got blogs, you got vlogs, you got Twitter storms, you got webinars, you got eBooks, you got internal documentation, external documentation. There's just just a lot of content.
2: Lions and tigers and bears, oh my!
0: <laughs> yeah, but when you're you're in a market that kind of has customers at every level and at every vertical, because everyone and their mother has a vlog and a blog and eBooks and all these other things, you basically start to face a tragedy of riches situation that can generalize and and almost
2: average out your product. Right. So this is why you choose to go after the enterprise who have broad but also specific needs versus going after a generalized tool that can plug into every CMS, which, you know, it's a tough decision because if everyone truly is producing content, it feels like a pigeonholed instance to go strictly at enterprise.
0: Yeah. And, and what you'll find is that Cordoba originally did sell to everyone. And primarily customers who were in tech and at startups but their very first enterprise deal ended up being 5x bigger than their next biggest tech deal and so the company went through a lot of firsts in what comes along with enterprise where they were already producing all of these features that were being adopted by the enterprise so that started to
2: kind of just make this decision for them sure but this move is it's much more easily portrayed between us two sitting in front of a camera <laughs> chatting about it than it, it is actually done
0: yeah absolutely. Absolutely, And May definitely agrees, as she says, this was, quote, super painful. Uh, and imagine giving up on all of those customers who may not be big from a revenue perspective, but definitely rely on you in some manner. So listen to how May unpacks this journey and how it took so much longer than they thought it would take.
1: When we first launched, we were selling to everybody and primarily um, customers who were in tech and and startups. But for our first enterprise deal, which ended up being like five times bigger than our next biggest (laughs) tech deal, it was our first InfoSec process. It was our first procurement process. It was the first time we had to use their MSA, right? Everything that comes along with enterprise. We as a team, at the time it was my co-founder, our top sales rep, who's still our rep today, our uh, CSM, uh, who's our director of customer success now. We were all kind of like, hmm, we like that better than selling to startups, right? And the, the, the payoff is, is more, and the outcomes, the business outcomes, we all got really excited about. Plus, our, we're product people. Our product was getting richer and more sophisticated. And it was something that was really aligning with what our, customer buy, our enterprise buyers wanted to see. And so it just felt like a really natural fit for us.
0: Is it something where like that move is super tough? Right, like going because your DNA. Maybe there weren't a lot of people then, so it was easier to switch your DNA. But the DNA of selling to like a platform play or selling to everyone who has a blog versus selling to Visa or the NBA. Like there's expectations, the MSA, all that kind of stuff. What was that transition like?
1: Yeah, it was super painful. It was (laughs) keeping it
0: real. Yeah, Yeah.
1: (laughs) totally. It was 24 months, and it's we're still. At the end of that, the hardest stuff was really behind us. Mm -hmm. Literally everything about our business had to change from the way that we service customers, right? Service couldn't be a dirty word anymore in customer success, right? Mm -hmm. Because you are servicing a customer like five different ways, right? You've got a customer success rep, you've got a solution architect, you've got a product support person, you've got onboarding and training, you've got professional services, right? All of that for one customer, right? And they could be using all five of those people in one day. That really had to change and we had to learn that. The sales motion had to change and the type of rep that we hired actually changed. So we changed out the entire sales team yeah. other than that original rep. And the the profile of person was, was twofold. On the hard skills, we needed people who we could mold into domain experts, right? Because in the enterprise, it's not just a self-serve tool. You're actually instigating a business process change. And when you instigate a business process change, you as the vendor are the authoritative, opinionated adult in the room, right? Really kind of taking them through how best in class does it. And that's why you're not a tool, you're a solution. You're literally changing workflows across teams Mm. in really large companies. And that's why you can have millions or tens of millions of ROI, but it really is the role of um, the AE to paint a vision of that in an authoritative domain expert way. And then on the soft skill, um, we needed to hire people, um, reps who were just really good listeners. Right, because Cisco is a customer and they can use our product a thousand ways, right? Product on UX, documentation for engineering, uh, the legal team, we have legal use cases for contracts. What is that one way that we're going to use to get to an MSA? And you need to have reps who can really listen to people um, and understand what is gonna be the highest ROI and who's gonna get us to the MSA fastest, right, as a team.
0: This is the chaos that we all kind of sign up for. You know, we definitely went through this with ProfitWell, going from a self-serve product to going at a mid-market and enterprise tech-enabled service, then opening up a free product before building multiple other paid products. They're all focused on the right outcomes, but still a ton of change in honing the market. And if it was just one person doing all of that, which wouldn't be possible, of course, then it's, it's no big deal, right? You know, from an alignment point of view. But with an entire team all already moving in one direction, getting the momentum shifted in another direction
2: is, as May put it, pretty painful right and I particularly like the point that she made about listening and how it's important to bring on the right people who are good listeners especially when moving into the upper part of the market yeah
0: I loved this point as well you know mainly because it's it's those types of folks who will help the rest of the crew focus but the amount of documentation and training that took place to a relatively small team must have just been massive right
2: you know training is huge in these types of transitions absolutely
0: and and may's tactics here are actually 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 some that I haven't really heard before, especially around the, quote, team X use case. Uh, She's about to tell us all about that in a second, but pay careful attention to the other theme here that we hear time and time again around transparency being the friend of change and ultimately speed.
1: Training is everything. Mindset that we, the framework that we use, we we call it a wedge. Mm. And it's basically team X use case. So in the thousand ways that Cisco can use Cordoba, what is the team X wedge that's actually going to get a deal done? And from a training perspective, you're right, it's hard because you are basically coaching a rep to be able to see that and anticipate that and pattern match. And so it's, it's two things. We bring the whole wealth of the organization that came before them. So the CS reps who've onboarded people and implemented, the reps who've been successful before them, the founders who are listening to calls, right, um, to really give guidance and coaching. And in our sales reviews, we actually separate pipeline from deal reviews so we can go deeper on the particular deals so we could help new reps really see that. The other thing that we've done is record me and some of the early people talking about How does Braintree use Cordoba? How does Marriott use Cordoba? What are the workflows before and after? And when you actually hear it in the voice of the person that was doing the selling, a new sales rep can almost think of it as their own lived experience. And that's the kind of confidence that you actually need to train for, as if they were there in the room, right, when they made the switch and when that onboarding happened. I wish I had a silver bullet, right, for how this scales. It's just, it's hard work. It's really putting it in. And, And we've seen it, you know, thank goodness. We've seen new reps ramp. Mm -hmm. Um, But it definitely took a lot of clarity in our own business and the model of who we were like, what kind of person were we looking for? And then what did they need to succeed in selling this way?
0: Well, and when you're selling that way, you mentioned, so it's kind of, you're giving them some practical like outline knowledge, then you're giving them like, hey, here's examples. And then is it heavy coaching? Like, do you guys have that kind of like baked in? Like, hey, we listen to, you know, using chorus or, you know, some other product. Yeah, absolutely. We record
1: everything. Um, We even record internal calls. About a third of our team works from home or works remotely. And then two thirds of our forty one folks are, are in San Francisco. So it's just part of our culture to record absolutely everything. And people know that we're listening, right? So yeah. they'll see me like I'm in my bath at night and I'll leave a random comment on a call. And so people have come to expect that, yeah. you know, the whole org is listening. And it's not like, you know, like Big Brother or anything. People oh, love it, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it is it's part of the, the culture. Sure. It's been become part of the culture. And then the the coaching, I mean the, the reps seek it out themselves. you know they'll say they'll send me a note. Can you listen to seven minute seven to minute 11 mm. of this call with Ford because I really I was nodding my head, but I actually had no idea what they're talking about. and I'd love your feedback on that, cool. um, which is cool. yeah. And then they also seek feedback from each other. And so if we have an editorial use case, uh, new call with the New York Times, you know, here there was a rep um, who got Zillow very far. When you were talking to them about XYZ, you know, can you listen to my call? So there's a lot of that sharing that's happening. So no no rep is in a vacuum.
0: Going back to it was Team X
1: Team X use case.
0: Team X use case. Yeah. Talk me through that. Talk me through an example. Yeah. So we're we're going Zillow or um, you know, some of the other companies you yeah. you've worked with, but maybe just applying it to like enterprise company a yeah. right what Talk me through an example yeah of that.
1: so let's take condé nast sure. uh, as an example these guys have got literally like 50 different publications right and a ton of different teams that could potentially use cordoba and when we first prospect into them we may have you know gotten 60, 70, 80 people, yeah. right, in the campaign who have all um, gotten, um, gotten emails or, or, or collateral from us. And so, and maybe, you know, a fraction of them ping back. Maybe we get on calls with all of them, right? They're a customer, we're in an active process with City where that's actually happened, right? Where a lot of different folks have, um, have come back. In the case of Condé Nast, maybe what we decide is actually, even though the editorial use case is so exciting, It's going to take us so long to get to an MSA because there are so many decision makers. And they're actually fragmented, right? There isn't a centralized authority. Yet the product team is actually centralized, and they're interested too. And so can we come up with a use case for product UX with the product team that gets us through the door and really shows the ROI of the product? And then we use them to help us get into the editorial use cases. So that's what we mean by Team X use case. So product team, for just the product UX. Retention is not an issue because I think once we got the hiring profile right, it's people who really yeah. liked um, being at this stage and, and building something. It's a long-term worry, right? Like, is this going to work at 20 reps? And, mm-hmm. and I know that we're actually having, we're gonna have to constantly reinvent new frameworks, new things that work. And sure. so it's a never ending quest for growth. Yeah. And so I think maybe what I worry about is, you know us getting lazy and sure. just you know trying the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not super worried about that, honestly, because, yeah. you
0: know, it's a Yeah, you don't seem like scene. someone who's, like, going to be super lazy, <laughs> yeah. so that's good. When you think about the shift of going maybe a little bit more, I'm not going to call it mass market, but, like, mm-hmm. a little wider, and now you're going down to, like, essentially named accounts in any mm-hmm. other organization, what's that acquisition process look like, right? Yeah. Because I'm sure there's referrals, and I'm sure there's, you know, some network, you know, going on, yeah. but... How do you get like a Conde Nast to either pick up the phone or come to you and say, hey, we would like a call?
1: We're in the process of that, of figuring that out. Uh, The the big learning has really been that uh, pipeline has to be one team. So sales development, demand gen, and the top reps actually have, we have a pipeline meeting and I sit in on that too, as does our senior director of operations, Mm -hmm. right? This is business ops. What we think about is who got messages from us today. So we are ABM. It's ABM at kind of a larger scale. So uh, right now, this quarter, we have 300 target accounts. So those are folks who are getting, for our target personas, um, getting messaging from DemandGen and and they're being targeted via DemandGen. And they're also being targeted via sales development. This team is the team that meets the most frequently out of everybody other than CS. They meet twice a week. Uh, And it's because in enterprise, the sales cycles are so long, you really got to make sure that the quality of the leads that are coming through the top of the funnel are good, and if they're not, or we learn something new, that learning needs to be impacted immediately, actioned immediately. I mean, literally we'll have a call with Ford and then there's messaging the next day that goes out for demand gen, And it's because they all sit together and they meet on Tuesdays and they meet on Fridays, right? And we think about what actually happened and we, we track activity levels. Everybody prospects, including the reps. They've got clear goals around how much of their pipeline needs to be self-sourced. Because what we realized. you are referring to. Yep. Oh, interesting. Yep. In addition to the SDRs. Okay. And the reason for that is when we went back and looked at the opportunities that closed, where did that contact come from? And you can use ClearBit and you can get everybody's using all sorts of data sources, but there's nothing like a rep who really understands, right, what kind of people respond to their Calls and their messaging, right? Because yeah. they're in that. And so when we get, you know, let's say we are prospecting an account, let's, let's say it's Disney, and Clearbit returns 100 contacts. And then that rep goes in because that's their named account for the quarter, and they add another 15. The likelihood that the op that made it through was actually the 15, I mean, it's ridiculous. And so once we actually showed people that, the reps were like, oh, shit. And so you need the air cover from the SDRs totally. and demand gen. But just, you know, that additional 10, 15 hours of prospecting a week from the AE, they could see how much yeah. it was impacting the pipeline.
0: That's really cool. And, and was there pushback on that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's awesome. Totally. And, yeah. you know, our SDR manager was a huge believer in in this approach. And yeah. it was he actually introduced it. He's awesome. And he had seen it work at Domino Data where he had built that process. What
0: percentage is it? Like, is it? Oh, sound, it's like 40, like, 50%. I was just going to say, oh, yeah. like you yeah, said 10, half. 15 hours a week. That's yep. not that's not a small task. No,
1: that's it's, it's big and they hate it, right? And they've got their headphones in and their music blaring. But once they saw that it works and he would, in our Slack channel on Fridays, activities, it's activity levels, like he would call out, he called them non-believers. Right, because their activity level was lower. But then once we started, every time, you know, we were talking about what meetings got booked, right, we would always write, like, what was the actual source? And so then people started, you, you know, once you see someone being successful, what's so great about salespeople. Yeah. We love salespeople because they're such, they're so fast to copy yeah. really successful tactics.
0: Do you worry about, like, sales cycles then? And, like, is the, are they comped on that? Like, are they comped on that 40%? Like,
1: yeah, okay, right. yeah. so they're
0: comped on creating those ops, and then they're also comped on like a revenue target, it sounds like, So right? they're or,
1: not, okay, I see what you're saying. No, they're, yeah. it's not like the SDR, right? They're okay. not comped on prospecting. They just have their commission. They have to do
0: it. I could just and, see, so I, I'm pretty sure like our head of, you know, what we would call our BDR team, we call it something a little different. Yeah. Huge proponent of exactly what you're saying. And I see the person who leads the AE as being like, no, we can't. They're not like, going to do that. Yeah. Well, not even they're not going to do that. It's just like, oh, then we're not going to be able to sell and we have to get to our target and like all this other stuff. That's interesting.
1: Unless these guys have like a five mil active op pipeline, yeah. right? There's no reason yeah, why totally. they don't have enough time. And actually, even the top rep who's got a pipeline like that, she prospects on the weekend because she sense. knows but that's really She wants to get
0: paid. She yeah, which is paid. good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. This turned into me just getting advice. <laughs> that's great. what it was. So <laughs> um, Very cool. Okay, so we have the enterprise side. We're going after... It was role X use... I,
1: team Jesus, X use case. I'm
0: so exhausted, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Team X use case. This is... Yeah, I was like, I like it so much. Uh, team X use case. Change in a business is inevitable, but most of the time, that change is reactionary. The market moves, so you react. You get larger, so you react. But sometimes, you need to take it upon yourself to choose
2: to make massive changes and pivots. Sure, these transitions may be because of market dynamics, but you're better off ripping the band-aid from the pain than slowly and incrementally making these shifts. Exactly. But this doesn't mean
0: there aren't a thousand little things that need changing. It just means that you need to commit to the change and transparently work to get everyone on the same page, filling in the gaps where they arise as they always do. Because at the end of the day, any successful pivot requires a proactive group effort.
2: Protect the Hustle is produced by Dan Callahan and Ben Hillman. With help from Steve Sarasoli and Alyssa Chan. Written by Abby Sullivan. Share this episode on Twitter with the hashtag ProtectIt, and we'll hook you up with some official PTH and ProfitWell swag.